My, my topic over the next five days will be revolving around a biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. Marriage, singleness, manhood, womanhood, raising children. And, and I thought uh, before I, I began to think about those subjects that I might tell you a little bit about me. Um, not to put the focus on me, but because really I think the Lord commands us to do this. He tells us to remember that we were once dead in trespasses and sins, and now we've been made alive. And He actually commands in Ephesians chapter 2 that we remember that we were once alienated from God, and now we have been brought near. And then He models for that for us in 1 Timothy 1, and He actually spells out His own testimony of how he was even a Paul was a persecutor of the church and and though he was once a persecutor of the church God gave him mercy so that he might become uh, saved and a minister of the gospel and so uh, I can't help but think it's a total miracle that I'm here I am a total product of the early 1970s which I was born some of you're like okay I can't listen anymore uh, but um I was born and I, my, my parents were both studying psychology at university and so I called my parents Pam and Tim uh, when I was first, first born. And uh, then I got a fever and I began to have hallucinations and I began to call for my mom. And she came to me. I have a deeply maternal mom. She's a wonderful woman. But she came to me and began to care for me and I said, well... You're not my mom, you're Pam. Well, that ended right there. That was the last time she ever had me call her Pam. Again, and, and so you see how these, these lies that pervert biblical man and woman get rid of gender roles, mom, dad, just be Pam and Tim. The truth always, though, bursts out from it, right? Every mom doesn't want her child calling her Pam when he's got a fever. Um... As I as I grew up, um, first of all, first of all, I went on, went on like that. But then was just a product of the uh, the culture that really leaves children alone, and and was was involved in sexual experimentation from when I was eight or nine years old because there was no one watching, no one looking. Uh, can't remember a time when I wasn't exposed to pornography um, from just the earliest of ages, really from before. I had hit puberty. Pornography was a reality. And, and I, I'm, I'm that generation that just missed the Internet being part of my teen years and college years. And it's even a harder battle for many who are here today. But I don't, I don't remember a time not being exposed to some sort of sexual perversion. Uh, my parents are, are divorced. Uh, there's multiple adulteries is part of the cause of that. And so the breakdown of manhood and womanhood uh, affected me there again. I dropped out of high school when I was 16 years old or 17 years old. I, I left home when I was 17 and moved in with my best friend's mom and her partner, these lesbian witches who were uh, into white magic, which seemed harmless to me. And, and that's where I spent my time um, when I was 17, 18 years old was immersed into uh, promiscuity and all kinds of sexual immorality and then eventually left the smaller cities of western Canada where I grew up and went to the big city, Vancouver. And it was really for me a prodigal son year and just became involved in all kinds of 
debauchery uh, to the point where I was basically living under a living under a, a porch, renting renting the underneath of a porch uh, to live on, and just just absolutely depressed. Absolutely, I would I would walk a hundred blocks a day. I felt more normal on drugs than I did sober. And uh, I remember putting my name in the in the in the paper as a kid to support homosexual rights. I mean, y- you name it in terms of the effects of sexual perversion, they they've affected my life and they've affected your life as well. Maybe not in some of those ways, but it's it's just simply not possible to escape what I'm describing at some level, whether it's a cousin who's into this or my son who was exposed to that, the uh, sexual dementia that has really affected this culture touches everyone. Anyway, what I was trying to get at, though, is then when I turned 21, I moved to a small town and my stepmom started witnessing to me and I said, there's no absolute truth. And she said, are you absolutely right about that? (laughs) And then... And then I said, there's no right and wrong. And she said, do you think you're right about that? And, then, <laughs> and, and I, I began to read the book of Ecclesiastes. I knew the Bible. I have three uncles who are ministers. I grew up a little bit in church and knew the Bible a little bit. So I, I found the Bible, the book of the Bible I didn't know the most. It was the book of Ecclesiastes. And, and their sexuality had a part there too. He's saying he had women. Solomon had had women, but it, vanity, vanity. All is vanity. And I thought, that's me. All is vanity. I've, I've had all those pleasures and it's all meaningless, meaningless. All is meaningless and searching after wind. And then I read the Proverbs. I, I was not convinced the Bible was true. And, uh, and as I read the book of Proverbs, and it began to warn against the immoral woman. Here's sexuality again. It began to warn against the immoral woman. I thought to myself, the Jews were wise. So now they were... <laughs> They, I didn't think the Bible was true, but the Jews now were up there with the Buddhists and the Hindus in my mind in terms of being a wise ancient religion. And then, and then I began to read the, the minor prophets and to hear them rail against sin and this idea that the, the Bible was the opiate of the masses just didn't square with what I was actually reading in the Scriptures. And then I began to read the Sermon on the Mount. And what did Jesus say? He said, if you even lust... After a woman, there's sexuality and biblical manhood and womanhood again. If you even lust for a woman, you've committed adultery, and all of a sudden it wasn't just about the Jews being wise, but it was about my sin. And the Lord began to convict me. And uh, I got a hold of a book of apologetics, began to read through it on the back, on the back of the book. I had a on the back of the book of this apologetics book. It said, there was this testimony saying, within 40 minutes of reading this book, I became a Christian. And I, I actually cursed and said, I know that's exactly what's going to happen to me. And so I read for 20 minutes and went outside and gave my life to the Lord. I'm married, I have four kids, and I'm a Baptist pastor. I don't know how this happened. This, 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 God intervenes. He, he, he comes in and He changes lives. And we think, oh, the culture is so hard. My friends are so hard. They, they don't seem affected by their sin. They don't, they, don't, they don't care about biblical manhood. Well, that can't ever work in this generation. All of that is we need to sing that hymn. We stand against the devil's lies. 
That's all lies. That's all lies. The Word of God is living and active and powerful and it's absolutely able to break through into any human heart. The most sheltered, secluded, homeschooled, cared for heart and the most debauched and debased and out on the streets and exposed to everything heart are equally dead before they're born again and equally made alive when the grace of God comes home through the cross of Jesus Christ and He changes people. And so when we talk about biblical manhood and womanhood, what we're talking about is we're talking about the idol of this culture. Okay, We're, we, we could get up and give a, a, a scholarly lecture this morning, this evening on Buddhism, and that would be valuable to some degree, or a scholarly lecture on Hinduism to some degree. And there's increasing numbers of Buddhists and Hindus in North America. But if you want to know the real idolatrous religion of this culture, it is not Buddhism, it is not Hinduism, it is a constant lustful craving after sexual immorality that is will, people are willing to kill 50 million babies to support their sexual immorality since 1973. They are willing to slaughter their marriages to have adulterous relationships. They are willing to get online and just run their credit card bills up to, to engage in sexual immorality online. They are willing to abuse children. Fathers in this country and others are willing to leave their daughters unprotected so they wind up in the sex trade all over the world. We were in Moldova this year and listening to this, more women and men have been sold into sex trafficking in Moldova than people died in the Afghan war. All of that revolves around what? The sin of sexual immorality. The sin of not understanding what a godly man is and not what a godly woman is. Breakdown of the family. You, you could spend all night thinking about these things. And it's, 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 it's my belief that when we preach the Gospel and we think about the Gospel, we have to think about it as it relates not to sin in general. That's important. But to sin as it touches our lives to the sins that we're locked in. Listen to John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3. How did he preach? How did he preach? Did he walk around saying, there's sin in general. We need to repent of sin in general. No, he went right for the jugular of his day, which was you who are hoarding, quit hoarding. He said, uh, you who are extorting, quit extorting. And he, he, you who are collecting uh, too much taxes, quit that. He, he went right for what was happening in his day and what was happening in his day with those things, what's happening in our day is a complete abandonment of God's call in our lives to be men like Jesus, to be women with the character of Jesus who reflect the church, and to be people who reflect the glory of God in every area of our lives instead of pursuing whatever lust strikes our fancy at that moment. And so I want to speak to you about biblical manhood and womanhood in these days. These things all affect us. All of us have uncles and bosses and husbands and fathers. And these men affect us as men. And each of us have sisters and mothers and grandmothers and aunts and wives. And these women affect us as Women and learning how to live out what God has called us to in our roles that God has given us is, is vital to reflecting the gospel in our lives.
So where do you start? Where on earth do you start? Do you start with singleness? I mean, that's, where we, that's where we start when we're born. We start single. Or do you start with marriage? That's where many of us wind up, is married. Do we start with, do we start with teaching on child raising? That's how you get at kids the earliest and get to do some preventative maintenance, Lord willing. <laughs> do you start with manhood? We know men are to lead. Do you start with womanhood? Each of us started from a woman, Paul says. Where do you start? Someone said creation. That's exactly right. We need to start with creation. No, right answer. Um, what I want to do is back right up to who are we? Before you get into the details, the question is, who are we? Just as people, made in the image of God and made with genders, made as male and made as female, who are we? And so I just want to make four simple points this evening. We were created by God, male and female. Second point is going to be, we were created different as male and female with different roles. Third, we fell into sin and were cursed as male and female in our original roles. And lastly, in Jesus, we are being recreated into those original roles and better. Let me begin by reading to you from Genesis chapter 1. And maybe if you have a copy of the Scriptures, you can open there. Genesis chapter 1, verse 24 through 28. Of course, is the account of how God made the world. And on the seventh day, um, He made man on the sixth day. We read this, of verse 24. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And I want you to look, if you would, at Genesis chapter 2 where uh, the biblical story now zooms in and focuses in on that creation of that first couple. We get a a broad panorama in Genesis 1, but now we, we zoom in and we focus in on the creation of the first man and the first woman in Genesis chapter 2. And I'll begin reading in verse 15. 
The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so we've seen in Genesis 1 the creation of man, of man and woman. They were made to have dominion over the earth. They were made in God's image. Now in Genesis chapter 2 we've focused in and seen that it's not good for man to be alone, but Eve is made as a helper for him. And now I want you to look, if you will, at Genesis chapter 3 where their marriage and all humanity along with them fall into sin and misery. And I want to read to you from beginning at the cursing of the woman. To the woman He said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. The first point I want to make this evening is that we were created by God male and female. And I want you to notice my first point is not Christians believe we were made male and female. It's not that Christians believe it. It's that it's true. Every perversion we're going to notice over these coming days is not a perversion from the Christian worldview. It's rebellion against God who is there. It's that you can't live in another world other than God's world. And so when you rebel in God's world, it always twists what He made good. 
And uh, we were created by God, male and female. Genesis chapter 1 gives us the most amazing view of humanity that you can ever have. It shows us that we were created by God, and not only were we created by God, but we were personally created by God. Notice in verse 24 that the animals come up out of the ground. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind. Some of you have read C.S. Lewis's The Magician's Nephew and seen the animals burrowing up out of the ground. And of course, Lewis got the idea from Genesis. But notice that the creation of man and woman is different than the creation of the animals. We don't just pop up out of the ground We are personally made by God. He says in verse 24, let the earth do that. In verse 26, he says, let us make man in our image. Listen to this. Every single human being who has ever lived was God's personal handiwork. Psalm 139 verse 14 says that each person is fearfully and wonderfully made, knitted together in their mother's womb. In my family, we have lots of blankets. We never have any shortage of blankets. We've got a chest full of blankets. It's always wrecking the hinges because it's coming up. Out. The blankets push, push the lid open. There's lots of blankets, but there's only a few that my mom quilted. And those ones are the most special in the house. Because my mother made them for each of her grandchildren. And you, even if you don't like your body type, even if you wish you had a body type from 10 years ago, you were knitted just the way you are by a personal God who was personally active in the formation of you in the womb. You were made by God. And, unbelievably, we are the pinnacle of God's creation. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates the light, the greater light, the lesser light, the plants, the stars, the fish, the birds, the animals of the ground. And of all of it, He says it's good, it's good, it's good. But when He makes man, He says, it's very good now. The pinnacle of creation is now on the scene. You know, people go to see whales in SeaWorld. They go to see mountains. But the most glorious thing on the planet is right in front of me in the dozens. People. One preacher pointed out, you know, no engineer could design these things like they'd have a coiling motion and a grasping strength and a coordination. And you have one on the end of each arm. <laughs> like that, That's amazing. That's God's good gift to you. You are God's good gift to you. And really ultimately to Himself. We are, by virtue of creation, the pinnacle, by virtue of what God did, the pinnacle of creation. And we are the creation, this is important, we are a, the creation of a triune relational God. It says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, let us make man in our image. Now someone would say, well, that's not a reference to the Trinity. God's just speaking to the angels. 
Well, let me tell you this. When God looks at the angels, He doesn't see ones that were made in His image. So He can't say to the angels, let us make man in our image. The only person, the only people in all eternity that God can say that to is God the Father can say that to God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And so we have here even a little hinting of what will become abundantly clear in the New Testament, that God is a triune God who makes... Why can't Allah be true? Because Allah is not a relational being. Allah is alone and lonely, and the best He can do is offer you celestial virgins in paradise. That's the best He can do. It's all He's got. He doesn't have anything. He's just a demon. He's a false, fake. But the lie of Allah never would account for this world. Because if there was an alone God, all alone forever, He wouldn't make relational beings like you. You were made in the image of a relational being. You, why do you like people so much? Or why do you struggle with people so much? It's either because you're embracing what God loves or rejecting it. But you can't avoid it. You were made in the image of a God who has never known a millisecond outside the context of a relationship. He has always been one God in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we are made in His image. Now, you think about that. And people in our day and age would say that sounds like mythology. Just just some God saying, let there be light and there was light. We need something much more rational like there was a ball of matter. All, all compressed and alone in the universe. And then suddenly it blew up and it spattered out all across the earth, all across the infinite whatever. And one of those places had a really good puddle, very conducive to lightning striking it and life coming out of it. And then, you know, the amoebas came out of the water and then from them the fish and they grew legs. And then you got the monkeys. And here we are, made in the image of Nothing, an accent. Made in the image of accent. But you better treat me with respect. (laughs) The world wants dignity. The world wants esteem. The world wants meaning. And they've embraced a lie for a worldview that will give them no foundation for the very thing they know they need. Which is what it is to be lost. To be lost is to know there's somewhere to go and to know you're not there. And the world is lost. Getting little glimmers of truth and covering them up with all kinds of lies. We as believers, and those of you who are believers, there ought to be a dignity about you. There ought to be a dignity about me just from this one fact that we were made in the image of God. It's amazing how quickly this can change. When I before I was a Christian, I always walked around like this. And my hair was usually hanging in front of my face. And one one time, just a few weeks after I became a believer, my dad said, Stand up, you were made in the image of God. Isn't that amazing? There's one truth. Just stand up. You're not a worthless descendant. You're not a bag of chemicals that's just bouncing around each other having chemical reactions that make you depressed one day and happy the next. You 
are made in the image of God. But notice this. Male and female, He created them. The image of God was not portrayed in one sex. Male and female, He created them. So look at that, verse 27. So God created man, singular in His own image. In the image of God, He created Him, male and female. He created them. The world has always struggled with what to do with women. Always. And the world either paints women as these pure angels, or it paints women as as immoral and ungodly. But or it, it, it devalues women. You know that the most one person has said recently the most dangerous words in the world right now are it's a girl. Because as soon as they find out it's a girl, you're way more likely to be aborted. In China, in India, the world devalues women. Devalues them utterly. It says, you can be the CEO of a major co- company as long as you don't mind that we strip you half naked and put you on the front of a magazine to rape with our eyes. Just degrades women everywhere. And the Bible alone comes along and says, Utter equal value. And not just equal to man. In the image of God. That's what a woman is. There's no greater foundation. And and sisters are constantly struggling with just perceptions of themselves and depression over themselves and and self-hatred and self-loathing over themselves. And you need to know this. No matter how far you sink in sin, you cannot erase this about you. You were made in the image of God. It's amazing. In the image of God, He created them. Now in the ancient Near East, where the book of Genesis was written, the way you marked off your land was you put a statue of you in your land. So think Sphinx. In Egypt. How do you know Pharaoh's in charge? He puts a sphinx there and says, this here is mine. You want a more modern example? Saddam Hussein. What was all over Iraq? Big statues of Saddam Hussein to say, Saddam's in charge here. Well, what was God doing putting people in His image and saying, cover the planet? Saying, this is mine. Which means that what you are at the very fabric of your being is you are the best medium, the best canvas possible to display the glory of God. Now, I don't know about you, I don't go to art galleries a lot, but when I do go to art galleries, what I notice is that there's that little white tag beside the picture, and that's your only hope of making sense of what's on the wall. And, and, and so, and so you, you read that, and it says, it says there, you know, fire. <laughs> Mixed medium. Pottery. Bronze, oil on canvas, pastels on paper. You know, it tells you what the artist used to display the idea that was in their soul. Well, when God wanted to stretch out the perfect canvas, 
to display his glory. He did not use pastels. He did not use paint. He did not use, he did not use a canvas at all. He said, I want five fingers and I want five toes. I want two ears. I want two eyes. I want a mind. I want a chest. I want legs. That's the, that's where I'm going to paint a picture of me. And you say, wait a second. Can, can my person really be the best place to display the glory of God? You bet it is. And that's why Jesus came as a man. And He is the image of the invisible God. The exact, the exact representation of His nature. To be a person is to be the kind of being it would take to display the glory of God. And that that effect, what does that mean? What does that mean to be made in the image of God? Are you beginning to get a little bit of a, of a taste of what it is to be human? Sometimes we, just, we go through life as assuming the basics. We say we want to see people saved and we never think, what is a people? Yeah. We want to see men saved. What are men? We want to see souls saved. What's a soul? And the amazing thing is you start to think about what a soul is, then you even more want to say, I want to see people saved. These people made in the image of God. What is the image of God? Well, it's, it's what we do and it's how we're made. It's two things. It's what we do, that's our function. And it's how we're made. That's our structure. Those are both, both of those are key to understanding what it is to be made in the image of God. What do I mean by that? Well, think about the way you're made. You're made with a mind. Which is why God can say to you, Come let us reason together. He has a mind and you have a mind. You're made in His image. There's a correspondence between you and Him. He can make moral distinctions. He says it is good. It is good. It is very good. He says some things are not good. And you walk through life just involuntarily making those kind of distinctions all the time. We're able to make these moral distinctions. It's, it's what it is to be made in the image of God is to notice what's good and what's not good and to notice what's right and what's wrong. To be made in the image of God is to be able to act. Now, there's a big difference here. He gets to act without hands. He says Red Sea part and it parts. We have to build Hoover Dam. But, not, <laughs> but nonetheless, in doing so, we are displaying the image of God. When we... I mean, I was flying above Missouri in a Cessna today, which was just a great gift to be able to, to fly at the low altitude and just, just to be able to look out over God's creation. And God is able to be at all places at all times, but He's given us the ability to, to walk and to run and to build cars and to build airplanes and to move. He's the God who acts and we are people who acts. Being in the image of God is the very, it's right into our structure. It's how we're made. But it's not just how we're made. It's what we're called to do. What does He call Adam and Eve to do? Go have dominion and subdue the earth. So what does it take to subdue the earth? You've got to have a mind. You've got to know it's right. And you've got to be able to act. And so He makes man and woman equally able to reflect Him and to be a display of His glory. 
Second point. We were both created in the image of God, male and female. The second point is we were both created in the image of God, male and female, with different roles. Now this is a mystery. We were both made totally equal in the image of God for something different. And if you want to unravel the mystery of how you can be equal and for something different, you need to go no further than the Trinity. That's where we get the unity of the one and the many. That's how we can understand how someone can be utterly equal and yet in a different place. The Son, totally equal to the Father, totally willing to submit to the Father. The Holy Spirit, totally equal to the Son, wants nothing more than to glorify the Son. And we are totally equal, male and female, brothers and sisters, in creation, and there are those who are Christians in the Lord, and yet with different roles. Now, in Genesis 2, we see this, but we have to be careful that we know how to read Genesis 2. Because Genesis 2 does not talk like Romans. People like Romans because Romans just comes out and says it. Romans will say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Genesis 2 will just tell you stories about really sinful people. Or uh, Romans 6 will say the wages of sin is death. Genesis 5 will just tell you, and he died, and he died, and he died. So the book of Genesis and the book of Romans are both written by God, both inspired by the Holy Spirit, and yet one makes its, way, its teachings in a teaching way, in a didactic way. The other teaches in a narrative way, through story. And you've got to learn how to read story. And when you learn how to read story, the points of different roles begin to come out real easily. The first way where we see role in Genesis is that men were created first. Men were created first. How do you know men have a different role? How do you know they're called to lead? It's because they were created first. Genesis 2.15 The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely eat die. Adam is all alone and he has a place to be. He has a place to work and keep. He has the Word of God. He has the promise of God. All when he's utterly alone. And the fact that he comes on the scene first means that he is called to lead. You say, wait a second, you're reading into the text. Well, I'm not reading into the text because it's just what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. 1 Timothy chapter 2, Verse 13. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, Paul, speaking about the context of the church, says, I do not, verse 12, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Why? Why? Why this order? Well, because of the culture in Ephesus. It just demanded that. That, that's the argument for why you would ignore this verse. But that's not the reason Paul gives. What Paul says is, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. This order of leadership is not because he's smarter. It's not because of the culture in Ephesus. It's because of the order of creation. That he was formed first, and Paul understood that to mean he was called to lead. 
Now it goes on and makes this in more ways too. Um, in, in, in the ancient Near East, and really even in our own day today, to name someone was a sign of authority. I mean, I, when my firstborn daughter was named, I named her Jordana. I didn't wait till she was 10 and say, well, what do you want? <laughs> and, and if she came to me and said, at, at, you know, at 15 and told me she wanted a different name, I would tell her she wasn't getting another name because, because I gave her her name. I'm her father and I have authority over her. For her to reject the name I gave her would be a rejection of authority. And in the book of Genesis, what do we find? We find Adam naming the animals. He determines what their names will be. And then twice it's pointed out to us that he names Eve. Specifically, we can see that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. So he is created first and then he is also given the the ability to name and he names his wife, which was a sign of authority. And then also, when the serpent deceived Eve, where did God go? He went to the man. The book of Genesis, it's really it's fascinating. It's too light a word, but... It's really quite amazing. The order of creation was to be God, man, woman, animals. And in the fall, the animal leads the woman over the man, over God. But they might have invented their own world, but they were still in God's world. And when they sinned, He came for the man. You see what I'm saying earlier? You can be in rebellion against God's world, but you're still in God's world while you're in your rebellion. And He came for man. He came to talk to Adam when Eve fell into sin. And Adam blame shifted and said, "Why this woman you gave me. But God didn't take that. Adam is a leader because he was created first. He's a leader because he was named. He was a naming and giving authority. He was given authority to name. And he was given accountability. Genesis 3.9 when, when sin came into the world, Adam was held accountable. He should lead. What we see about Eve is that she is called... Now this is key. She is actually created to be a helper. She's created to be a helper. 118. Um, sorry, not 118. A 218. It is not good that a man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now this this is amazing. Watch listen to those words. This again. This is we hear the word helper and it demeans women in our eyes. We, helper? It's like junior varsity. I mean, what this is this is this is demeaning. But we we don't we don't listen. A helper fit for him. Who's he? He's made in the image of God. He's the ultimate creation on the planet. And it's going to take somebody special to help Him. It's not a position of being demeaned. If someone called you, now forget the current president, your feelings about him, but if, if someone called you and said, you are going to be the helper to the president, you would not feel demeaned. Right? And think so. 
And God proves this by parading every animal on earth in front of Adam and none of them are good enough. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found, here's those three words again, fit for him. There's no helper fit for him. You can take a dog for a walk. You, you can ride a horse at a gallop. A monkey can get your bananas out of the tree if you're in Eden. But a monkey doesn't have a mind to fellowship with. Can't make the same moral judgments. Good, very good, not good. Can't act and do with the same dexterity and the same mental control as a man. There's only one creature on the planet that can fellowship with a man. And that's a woman. There's only one creature that can help a man. And that is a woman. Probably get into this more tomorrow, but this idea that helper is demeaning, we need to do away this completely. In the Bible, God is called a helper, the Holy Spirit is called a helper, and the Lord Jesus Christ is called a helper. None of them are feeling demeaned. But at the same time, we don't want to get rid of this idea. She really is called to help. She really is called to help. Um... They tease me at the church I pastor because I have, I've had every job there is to have. Uh, I was a carpenter's helper, an electrician's helper. I, I've been a welder's helper and uh, just helped everybody. And, and, and when I helped them, it was very clear they were to lead and I was to follow. They couldn't do their work without me, but my work was not to do their work. They were called to lead. I was called to follow. Now some of us get, we get scared of this teaching. Man's called to lead. Woman's called to be a helper. It all sounds good in a church when you go talk about it out there. It makes people a little, more, a little more nervous. But you need to be careful. If, if this teaching that man is called to lead and a woman is called to help does not attract you or it seems foolish to the eyes of the world, let me ask you this. What else seems foolish to the eyes of the world? Jesus Christ died to save sinners seems foolish to their world. You don't go to the world for your ideas of what's foolish. They'd get rid of your Savior too. Not just rid of, not, not just rid of the Bible's gender roles. Third point. We fell into sin and were cursed as male and female in our original roles. Now this is key. This helped my wife and I in marriage a great deal. It's helped me at least. Lots of other things have helped her. (laughs) Didn't mean it like that. Sorry, honey. Um, It's helped me immensely in marriage to, to, to notice that the curse put on Adam and Eve for their sin It's not a generic curse. It's not just like you're generally cursed. Life's going to be hard. It's a specific curse that touches their gender roles. So Genesis 3.16, to the woman He said, 
I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. So it's not just pain in general. It's pain as related to her role of being the mother of all living. And then in Genesis 3.18, it's not just difficulty in general, it's that Adam will have difficulty with work in providing. 17, halfway through 17, Cursed is the ground because of you, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat, of the, eat the plants of the field. It's very specific curses, but I want you to notice one part of the curse that specifically touches the way we relate to one another as male and female. Notice verse 16. God, God says to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband. Now this is a curse. So what is the curse? Is it, I curse you and you will really, 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 really want your husband? I don't, I don't think that's what is being said here. If you look at Genesis 4-7, we get the same word, desire. Now we're in the context of Cain and Abel, the first murder in the world. And God says to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching out the door. It's same word, desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Sin wants to, its desire is to rule over you, Cain. It wants to rule over you. What's it saying in Genesis 3.16 to the woman? Your desire shall be for your husband. No longer will you be content being a helper. No longer will you be content submitting. Think, Why is it so hard for me to submit? It's because I was born in this feministic culture. No, it's not. It goes way deeper than that. The reason it's so hard to submit is because we were cursed with an unsubmissive spirit. Women specifically were cursed with a desire to be in charge where they were once called to submit. But then you go on and it says, and He shall rule over you. And this word rule, according to Wayne Grudem, is not a is not a, a is not a shepherding, a loving rule. It's that he's going to be a harsh ruler. So you, you've got the battle of the sexes born in Genesis three. She's going to want to rule, and he's not going to rule in a loving, shepherding, Christ-like way. They both want to be in charge. She's not supposed to be in charge, and he's not supposed to be in charge like that. But he's in charge like that, and she's trying to be in charge, and they can't get along. And they get divorced. And he starts looking at pornography. And she starts reading romance novels. And it goes downhill from there. That's the way we've been cursed. You need to know that if you can't overcome a harshness towards your wife, it's because you are in Adam and you need to be born again. You're under a curse. And you need to know that if you're a Christian, and it's a struggle to be kind, to be loving, it's because the flesh is strong.
You need to grow in the Spirit. And you need to know that if you're a woman who has trouble submitting, trouble coming up under it, and you can never do it, if you can never bring yourself to submit at all, you need to be born again. You need a new heart within you. One that loves what God loves. But if you're a Christian that struggles to submit, you need to know you're not alone. You're not some, it's not some accident. It's, it's that this is what it means to be bent in the flesh. And, and this really ought to create a lot of compassion towards married people, right? In marriage, right? Why does my husband have such a hard time being nice? He's nice to everyone out, out in the world. Why does he have such a hard time with me? It ought to create compassion towards your husband. In Adam, he's under a curse. And towards your wives. There ought to be compassion towards your wives. Why is it such a struggle? Is it because she's so particularly bad? No, it's because we're all so particularly bad. And there ought to be compassion in marriage towards the struggles that we all bear in the infirmity of the flesh. Now, here's my last point, And I... I think it's glorious. In Jesus, we are being recreated into those original roles. Women, every time I ask the women of a congregation, they all know. What's the one thing Paul has to say to you in the New Testament? He just keeps saying it, doesn't he? It's like every chance he gets. Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, 1 Peter 3, Titus 2. Submit to your husband. And we look at that and we're like, why? Like, why, why not don't lie to your husband? Or, or be forgiving to your husband? Why always submit? Because in Jesus Christ, the fall is being undone. Paul, was a, Paul knew his Bible. Paul wasn't just picking one random command. Paul wasn't just jumping around to jump something. He was like, okay, listen, when man fell into sin, it touched women in a particular way. It made them want to rule over their husband and their desire was to conquer him. And now in Jesus, they've been made new. They've been given new hearts. They've got the law written on their hearts. They've been brought into a... a, They want to bow their knees to Jesus. They have a submissive spirit in them. And now he, he touches where it's the most hard. And he says, do it there. Submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Why is it fitting in the Lord? Because Jesus is making all things right. Because Jesus is bringing all things into union with Himself. Which means He's taking all the ways you're disjointed from Him and He's setting you straight with Him. And that means restoring that submissive spirit that wants to affirm not all male leadership, but godly male leadership. And sometimes in a suffering context, 1 Peter 3 ungodly male leadership. But man, have you noticed he does, he does the same thing with us? It's just always the same thing. Husbands, love your wives. I mean, if only he had just said, just do your duty for your wives. We'd all be fine, right? But wives have got this, this sixth sense 
that knows the difference between duty and love like nobody else, right? Husbands, love your wives. Colossians. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. 1 Peter chapter 3. Dwell with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the weaker vessel. Why the same thing? Because this is where men struggle. Men are not naturally nice to their wives. They're naturally, wives, they're naturally nice to the girls they're courting. But then they get married to them. And the battle with the flesh begins in earnest. And the Spirit of God is not interested in sanctifying a people in general. He does not sanctify a people in the abstract. He sanctifies a people in the particulars of who they are, in the particulars of their gender, in the particulars of their sexuality. And He says, he says let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Get the Gospel in you richly. Let the Word of Christ that says you're forgiven, you are, you are atoned for, you are redeemed, you are loved, you are a child of God, you have His Holy Spirit, let that dwell in you richly, singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Get that in you and then what? Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. The Spirit of God is redeeming us through the blood of Jesus in our genders and in the relationships that those genders bring us into. Which means that church is not for Sundays, is it? It means that the Gospel is for Monday and Tuesday and when the baby's crying at four in the morning and you know you should get up, man, to go take care of the baby, but you just want to lay there and let her do it again. But the Spirit of God's touching there. Do not be harsh. Go help out. And it means that wives, he's, he's speaking directly, it's not just that you're to submit to Jesus in general, but there's also this guy and his ideas are never, never quite as wise as Jesus's. <laughs> but Jesus doesn't want your submission if it ignores Him. That's a false submission. To think you're submitting to Jesus while ignoring the one Jesus put over you May God help us all. Let's pray. Father, we praise You for Your tremendous and mighty and glorious work of redemption. Lord, that though we were yet sinners, first made in the image of God, first made glorious, made to display You, and then to sin in that, to, to glorify lust and immorality and all kinds of fantasy instead of You. And then, Lord, to have You redeem us and shed Your blood for us and forgive us and then to call us back to what Adam and Eve fell from and to give us Your Holy Spirit to do it. Lord, I pray You do these things in Jesus' name. Amen.